You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom, the XPRIZE edition. We have two of these today. My first is with our guest, Steve Oldman, who is CEO of Captura. Steve, so thankful for you coming. How are you today? Great, thank you. Good. And then we have Hans de... I forgot to ask you how to say your name before it started, so I'll let you say it. De Neve. De Neve, CEO of Carbion. I hope I said that too, right? Perfect. Good. Thanks for joining us today. And then... Finally, I have Naeem Merchant, who many of you have heard before, and he's a consultant who works with NGOs and startups on scaling up carbon removal and writes the Carbon Curve newsletter, um, which he just dropped a new one, I believe, yesterday or today, so go check that out. How are you doing, Naeem? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. And then, as always, um, I'm Radhika Mulgafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at Nori. So we are super excited to have some XPRIZE winners on the show today. For all of those of you who don't know what I'm sure you all do, on April 22nd, XPRIZE announced the 15 winners of their second round of competition for carbon removal solutions. Each of these teams have been awarded $1 million to help them compete for the grand prize of 50 million or three $30 million runner-up spots awarded about three years from now. Um, so the grand prize winner may not be one of these 15 milestone awardees, but these teams are sure stepping up the competition and have, really, and have already demonstrated some pretty impressive technology to impress the judges. Um, of the 15 teams, six are building DAC solutions, three are sequestering carbon dioxide from seawater, three are producing biochar, one is growing algae, we'll be doing more on that later, and one is in utilizing enhanced weathering, and one encourages tree planting. So... Today, in our first episode, we're going to talk to Captura and Carbion. Um, so Steve, let's start with you. I think most of our listeners will recognize you as the former CEO of Carbon Engineering. So you spent a lot of time, obviously, in the DAC field, and now you're kind of moved over to oceans. So curious just what your journey was to oceans, and then also a bit of an overview about Captura. Yeah, thank you. Um... So, uh, yeah, that, I could answer that question in very long form, but I'll, I'll try and be brief. Um, so, you know, I think the first thing I'd say is, is there's a dramatic change between when I started at Carbon Engineering at the start of 2018 and now. Uh, at the start of 2018, there was almost no recognition of the need for carbon removal. Uh, direct air capture, for example, was perceived as wildly too expensive, not relevant. And unfortunately because that's the right way to say it. Unfortunately, carbon removal has become more and more critical. And so, you know, at Carbon Engineering, I, I hope I was able to advocate for and drive uh, direct air capture as an effective tool in the fight against climate change. Um, and, you know, I think we now have lots of different DAC companies uh, coming in with new technologies, there's funding available, and that's all fantastic. Um, what attracted me to the ocean side, though, is... The fundamental challenge of removing CO2 from the atmosphere is it's so thinly dispersed, you need to touch a lot of air to be able to capture a meaningful quantity of CO2. So in the field of direct air capture, you, you have to build something that touches a lot of air. And inherently, that's going to cost 
money or require a lot of physical space. So Capturing's approach is, well, well, wait a minute, the thing that touches the air more than anything else is the ocean. It's available, it's enormous, and it's free. So Captura's approach is let's use the ocean in a non-harmful way to pull CO2 out of the air because the ocean is already a very effective absorber of CO2. About 30% of all the CO2 that we've released into the atmosphere has been absorbed into the ocean. And the chemistry is pretty straightforward. If you pull CO2 out of the ocean in the right way, the ocean will then pull a commensurate amount of CO2 out of the air. So that's what really attracted me. Here is a way in which you can eliminate a fair amount of the cost associated with touching lots of air by utilizing the ocean. Cool. Thank you so much, Steve. And then Hans, I'd love if you would maybe give us an overview of Carbion's approach and what excited you about it as compared to other um, DAC concepts. Yeah, the approach of Carbion is actually reusing um, uh, a technology that we were developing for solar panels because I'm a material physicist myself and I was working in the area of solar panels and there we use uh, or we make use of um, techniques to put uh, very thin atomic layer thin uh, layers actually on, on certain uh, substrates. And uh, this actually brought me on the idea to uh, reuse that technology that we use from for solar panels and for microelectronics purposes, uh, but to use that um, on a porous medium um, and uh, in order to speed up the process, because if you have a very thin layer, an atomic thin layer, let's say you don't have any uh, slow diffusion process anymore, so you can actually speed up the process of uh, extracting CO2 from, from air. And that has been the origin back in 2017, I think, that uh, when the idea came, uh, came about. And it's true, like what Steve was saying, that in those days, nobody really acknowledged the need for capturing CO2, uh, especially not CO2 from air, because flue gas capturing has been around for, for quite a while. Uh, but capturing it from air indeed was deemed as um, yeah, too expensive and would always stay expensive. But I think uh, now we see the onset of new technologies that really uh, prove that this could be a feasible approach, either through the oceans or directly through the air. We use a technology filtering directly from the air, so indeed we need to displace huge amounts of air uh, and bringing that air in contact with the fast sorbent that we developed. Um, and we don't know whether this uh, approach, of course, will prevail, but uh, we think there is a fair chance that in this way we can indeed lower the costs and bring the, those costs down to a level which is uh, deemed um, economical or to do it in an economical viable way, let's say. And so that's, that's our approach to this uh, problem. So we were founded in 2019. And so, uh, well, we're still building up towards a prototype. So it's still in the development phase. Let's say we're a young team. 12 people, so it's uh, it's still very, uh, very uh, premature, uh, but we have a strong belief, so uh, that's who we are. Well, thank you both for that overview. What strikes me that you both said and commented was how just five years ago, right, carbon CDR technologies were, you know, maybe at best mocked, at, at worst, you know, accused of being a moral hazard. But still, there's this explosion all of a sudden with in a very quick period of time. So I'm curious how that happened and how you think now that there's even more interest in the CDR world, 
it'll accelerate that um, development of technologies. I'll start with you, Hans, move over to you, Steve, and then would also love your perspective, Naeem. Yes, I think um, if people start to realize that it's just not sufficient to stop emitting uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, we will also at least partly undo what we've been emitting the past 150 years. And then there is no escape for capturing CO2 from oceans or from the atmosphere. Um, so point source capturing uh, will not be sufficient. And I think people have started to realize that. Uh, IPCC has now mentioned it, uh, the uh, IEA has, has mentioned it. So gradually you see that these things are becoming more visible on everybody's radar screen. Um, it's a gradual process, right? Um, and, and, and this takes some time for people, also politicians and, and other people to start realizing that we will simply need this. There is no way around this. Um, and it's frustrating, of course, that it is taken till now, actually, for things to become more clear to many people uh, and to a critical mass of people that this will be needed. But now we are reaching this, this, this moment, finally, and I think this is a very good thing, of course, for every company working on, on these uh, technologies, because that means more money will become available. At the X price, for Elon Musk, of course, is a, is a very nice demonstration of that. Um, and this will only accelerate in time. But unfortunately, indeed, it has taken till, uh, till now, let's say, for, um, for a critical mass of people to start realizing there is no way around this. So, so for me, I think, I think a lot of people perceive the climate problem as an emissions problem. And it's not. It's not an emissions problem. It's a total accumulation problem. Every day we make it worse with more emissions but there's yesterday and the day before and all the way back to 1850 or whenever it may have been when we started burning coal. So when you have a total accumulation problem, you need to address it in two ways. You need to cut down on your current emissions to stop making the problem worse, stop digging the hole. And then secondly, you need to deal with what you've already done. So I think there is finally, I don't think it's there in all quarters yet, but I think there's growing recognition that this is a total accumulation problem. As to you know what what's kind of led to the change, um, you know I think there have been a number of companies, entities, individuals who, who've who've worked to, to show that carbon removal can be cost effective. It's not cost effective for every single emission in the world. There are way cheaper ways to eliminate many many emissions, but for a lot of emissions and for yesterday's emissions, because fuel cells, electric cars, solar panels don't deal with yesterday. Um, it can be very cost effective. At Carbon Engineering, we made a conscious choice to publicize our costs and our method to reset the thinking because everybody perceived it was over $1,000 a ton. We had to reset the thinking and, and that's what Carbon Engineering chose to do. And, and now the great news is, is people are, are more aware of this. So more brilliant minds are coming to this problem and the more brilliant minds, the more companies, the more good solutions. I think Hans is, is quite correct. There will be some solutions that, that don't pan out. I'm not suggesting Hans's won't pan out, but in general, there'll be some that don't work, that don't scale, that don't have the economics, but there'll be some really, really good ideas. And we need every tool in the climate toolbox to fight against climate change. What are you thinking? You know, I agree with everything that's been said so far and, and not to kind of add too much here, but to build on what was already said, I think 
there's also a growing contingent that looks at this problem as a, as a justice issue that the countries and economies that have made the kind of biggest impact on climate change through the cumulative emissions of, of CO2 and other greenhouse gases have the responsibility to remove it from the atmosphere. And I think that's, um, that's you know, I think a, a, a newer kind of way of looking at this, this problem relative to kind of some of the other um, kind of ways of looking at it. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a growing perspective and one that I certainly agree with. And I think that's another area where carbon removal has an important role to play. And I think more and more people are seeing that. So you, you said maybe right into what I wanted to talk about next, actually, Naeem. So thanks for that beautiful introduction. Um, I wanted to ask both Steve and Hans a little bit about the moral hazard question, but not so much like is in terms of that allows people to admit more, but more in terms of, I think for the ocean specifically, so Steve, this is directed towards you. Um, there's a big concern about unintended consequences to the ocean biosphere, to the ecology of the ocean. And so how do you at Captura think about that and how do you um, address that? And then Hans on the DAC side, at least in the US, there's a lot of concern about the building and permitting of these units in areas that of where historically marginalized or people who have historically been impacted by the oil and gas industry will be. And there's a big trust gap. So how do you overcome or how do you guys think about that trust gap? So Steve, I'll start with you. Hans, I'll go to you. And then Naeem, I'll come back to you to get kind of a more broad overview, I think. So please, Steve. So, so we treat ocean health extremely seriously. Uh, our product uses only ocean water and renewable electricity. We have no absorbents, no byproducts. Uh, ocean water in renewable energy causes our chemical reactions and the products of our system is CO2 as a stream of gas and decarbonized ocean water. That decarbonized ocean water causes an extraction of CO2 from the atmosphere within a a relatively soon time period uh, and consequently the ocean water is, is uh, returned back to its current state. Now we all know that one of the impacts of climate change is acidification of the ocean. So our process actually helps with that by deacidifying and then the natural process means that the CO2 is absorbed back into the ocean but at the end of the day the ocean water remains the same way uh, we'll be working part of the um, advantage of the funds that we got from XPRIZE is we'll be working with the uh, ocean health bodies to, to ensure that everybody agrees with that um, and that there is no uh, ocean health issue associated with our process. Hans, how about on the DAC side? How are you guys thinking about some of these issues? Yeah, I think on the DAC side, I mean, we need to consider indeed the, the yeah, the, the physical locations of these devices. And, and um, I think there can be a, a not in my backyard uh, feeling, uh, but some of the things that we start to realize is that the footprint of this technology does not to be, the physical footprint does not have to be that large. Uh, and for the sake of the XPRIZE, for example, we made some calculation that uh, an, an extraction site uh, of say uh, 1 million ton uh, a year would not have to be bigger than a football field. So in a way, the physical size of, of these uh, um, systems do not have to be huge eh, or, or disrupting in, in any way. Uh, having said that, of course, I mean, it will need to have some location, of, of course, and, and you mentioned uh, people uh, or locations, areas 
uh, where oil extraction has, has taken place and where pollution has taken place. I think there is also an opportunity there in the sense that all these empty oil and gas fields, they represent a major uh, reservoir, of course, for putting the CO2 back from where it originally came from, obviously, eh? because in a way, extracting it from the air and putting it underground in empty oil and gas reservoirs is kind of, um, yeah, putting it back where it came from. Um, and, and, and this economical activity, eh? because this is, we're talking here about an economical activity, of course, can also uh, help to, to, um, to boost activity in those regions and help to restore as some of the damage that was caused uh, by these uh, to these um, uh, regions and to these populations. So I think if we do it in the right way, and this can turn out to be a very beneficial thing, uh, also for those regions that have suffered from exploitation of uh, fossil oil and, and gas. And at least and that that has been. Um, I mean, for us, it's more than simply developing a technology, also in the way you apply it and how local communities can benefit from it, I think will be key in how we want to uh, run our business. And then Naeem, just from an overall CDR perspective, when you think about, and I'm not talking about the moral hazard again of more emissions, but more the moral hazard of the new technologies and the potential negative impacts, how do you balance that? Or how do you think about that generically? Well, I think we just need to, accelerate the amount of research we do into what you know potential harms can can result and um and i i think that we've you know both of these companies have kind of given us some pretty thoughtful answers around these potential challenges but ultimately you know i can't think of a more kind of impactful way that philanthropies academia and, and governments can get involved in carbon removal than you know advancing some of our kind of need for greater basic science and research around impact of carbon removal, you know, via oceans, or, um, or, you know, like some of the, you know, energy land use implications of direct air capture and other technological CDR solutions, you know, the sooner we kind of do research on these issues, uh, understand some of the challenges a little bit better, uh, and know how they have, um, you know, societal implications and, and implications on communities, I think that's really critical. Uh, to making sure that then companies like Captura and Carbion can can scale up quickly. The sooner we start answering these questions and do that front end research, and not to say that we don't understand a lot of the science here, we we do in in many cases. But what what's that kind of cross section with um, with the social sciences, and and uh, and and how do we kind of incorporate that element of research into these kind of questions around location and siting? Um, you know that's that's really underfunded. And the sooner we do that research and the sooner we get some, some clearer answers around the implications of citing DAC or other types of carbon removal technologies on communities that are nearby on ecosystems and so on, you know, that really positions a carbon removal field uh, to, to scale up more quickly. But that's a big gap right now. And I think we don't know enough about it. Um, so it's great to hear these companies take it seriously and, and, uh, and, and build on the science and research that we already have. But I think there's still a gap and we need to fill that quickly through, like I said, philanthropy, academia, and government to, to, to work out those questions for us. Uh, so Steve, one more, one more question kind of related to this. I think one of the big challenges that I've heard when I talk to people in the ocean space, particularly is the MRV around it and how the development of the monitoring reporting verification piece is, is maybe not as sophisticated as it is in other types of CDR. 
So how are you at Captura thinking about that? I've heard that there's some working groups going on and other things. How are you approaching that question around the MRV piece? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a whole variety of different ways of carbon removal and, and many have the MRV challenge. Um, direct air capture done in the way that I imagine Hans and, and certainly carbon engineering are doing it. You, you get a stream of gas, so it's easy to, easy to measure that. Um, Captura's technology also produces a stream of gas, CO2, so you can, you can measure that. Um, and then the, the question that comes is, okay, we took that CO2 out of the ocean. How do we know the ocean then pulled it out of the air? So the chemistry of that is really pretty straightforward and very clear. As long as your ocean water is at the shallow um, uh, aspect of the ocean, if our decarbonated, decarbonized ocean water was injected deep into the ocean, we wouldn't get that effect. So, you know, we position our plants where ocean currents are such that our, our decarbonized ocean water at the back of the plant will sit on the surface and will automatically produce that effect. So there is education to be done here, but Captura's technology kind of falls a little bit in between. Uh, we do produce a stream of CO2. You can measure exactly how much CO2 we took out of the ocean. And we can then point to an enormous body of scientific work around the point that the ocean and the uh, atmosphere exchange CO2 according to chemical changes. So it's education for us um, for, to, uh, to demonstrate that to people. And again, that's a thing that we'll be looking to do over the next uh, uh, 12 months. And then final question before I move on to kind of the uh, what Steve was alluding to, kind of how these companies are going to apply their prize. Um, Naive, so you obviously are pretty deeply involved in the CDR space. So what did you think overall of the different milestone winners this time and kind of what set them apart from the 60 finalists? And I didn't realize this, but the thousand plus applicants, which I think is a nice number to see. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, when the XPRIZE competition was announced, I was really excited about the potential impact of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's kind of lived up to expectations. Um, you know, I recently wrote an article on the carbon curve about, you know, innovative ways to finance carbon removal and innovative innovation prizes like this are one of them. I think we need competitions like this every year. Um, you know, I'm not on the, uh, the selection committee for, for this, this prize. So, you know, I don't know what's happening under the hood, but what I can say is that those first crop of a thousand applications were essentially carbon removal ideas that just about anyone could really submit. But that next cutoff of those 60 companies, they had really good, you know, viable solutions that theoretically could work and have an impact. I think what sets this group of, of 15 companies apart is a high degree of um, execution potential. You know, they have a good chance to each remove, you know, at least a thousand cumulative tons of CO2 by the end of the competition, which is a key requirement to win the grand prize of $50 million. Um, you know, and that's not only because of the kind of potential, um, you know, efficacy of these solutions, but, you know, these 15 companies have extremely high caliber management teams, you know, affiliations with institutions, you know, like, uh, you know, MIT or Caltech or, or my alma mater, the University of British Columbia, um, they've partnered with sequestration companies to figure out a, a, the tricky question around sequestration. So companies like CarbFix or 4401. And, you know, and they have a roadmap towards operating a full carbon removal project. Um, you know, the, the grand prize requires that companies operate a full carbon removal project at scale of at least 1,000 tons per year. And that's really hard to do right now. Not a lot of companies are actually doing that. 
And so these teams were selected because I think they were uniquely um, positioned to execute and deliver. Not to say that the other 45 were not, but I think these 15 particularly kind of rose to the top for that particular reason. Yeah, it's very exciting stuff. So um, Hans, we'd love to kind of learn a little bit more about what you what your company is going to use this million dollar prize to accomplish and kind of the scale of the current operation and maybe the largest two challenges your team is working to figure out. Yeah, I think for us, the, the main next challenge is to um, to build a, a prototype of this technology. And so far, we've been testing the basics of the material. Now it's time to build a, a machine on that that can capture outside air and and uh, get the CO2 out in a thermal process. So it's uh, it's it's the upscaling, let's say. So the the prize money from the X Prize is very welcome now to to expand our team. We're still a very small team at 10, 12 people right now. So there will be some additional mechanical engineers that come on board. Uh, so the money will be mainly used this year to uh, to finance to build a, a first prototype that should deliver the proof point of uh, or the final proof point, I would say, of of our ideas. It's like Naeem also said, I think um, in terms of selection by the XPRIZE, we were able to present some proof points uh, that make it, um, let's say, feasible that we could build this 1,000 ton uh, machine. Uh, but there is still uh, a huge amount of work <laughs> that will need to happen this year and next year for us to uh, to achieve that goal. I think it's, it's, it's a really nice goal because it puts, of course, um, it's like a man on the moon target, so everybody is tuned into that and knows that that's where we want to be, uh, uh, no matter how challenging, let's say, it is. And, and the money, the prize money, is really extremely welcome for us to be able to, uh, to scale up our team and, and finance the building of that, uh, of that prototype. So it's the perfect moment, I would say. And Steve, sort of same question for you. What is the state current state of, at Captur and how do you want to use the $1 million to accelerate your program? Yeah, I'm happy to, happy to answer that. But just before I do, I, I do want to comment on and, and sort of give some kudos to the structuring of this X prize. You know, the problem with the, the concept of prizes is you appoint a winner and in doing so, you also appoint a bunch of losers. And as I said earlier on, we don't need losers here. We need all the good ideas. So I think the idea of giving milestone awards to a number of companies for, for small companies applying for a prize like this is expensive. It, you know, it's, a, it's a use of, of key people on the team. So you know, rewarding that with early stage money, I remember when I started at Carbon Engineering, the only money we could get was from our own pockets. So being able to get some money from, from the XPRIZE I think is great. And the fact that they have these 15 milestones and then multiple prizes at the end I think it's really well structured. So I, I just wanted to give kudos to the XPRIZE team for really thinking about how best to incentivize and, and reward people trying to come into this area. Um, with respect to Captura's plans, um, we have our first two systems, uh, which we plan to put into the water this year. The first will be in um, uh, Newport Beach in California, at the uh, Caltech facility there. And then we're hoping to work with a leading desalination plant to apply our technology onshore. Uh, and by doing so, we'll learn a lot. We'll learn about you know, real world ocean water. We'll learn about those types of things. We do have a fully working lab demo and we import seawater every day. 
uh, into the lab to allow us to work with that. But putting them in the water, I think, will make a big difference. And then for us, the key thing is, is, is the route that we want to take to get to at least a thousand tons. Uh, to be honest, I'd, I'd much rather go larger. A desalination plant uh, onshore has a uh, output of brine. It's a great opportunity for us to link in with that. Um, and that should allow us to capture about 10,000 tons per year if we can find a desalination partner who's interested in helping us and participating with us. So that's a big challenge for us. And then the last thing is just scaling up. Um, so we now need to bring good people in, uh, more good people. We have great people already, um, but we, we want to bring people in who, who, who are motivated by the climate space uh, and who can help us build at scale. So yes, it's an exciting time and it's all about growth. And the real thing that the Milestone Award allows us to do is just go faster. And that's good because the world doesn't have time to wait. Yeah, and Steve, it strikes me that you're one of the few people probably in the world that has actually worked for two carbon, you know, CDR companies and actually basically launched two. So I'm curious what the lessons you learned from carbon engineering you're applying as you grow Captura out um, in this early stage. So it's a, it's a great question. Um, uh, carbon engineering had different challenges. Um, you know, the, the nature of carbon engineering's technology is it's designed for large scale to get the cost down. So that means the first of a kind plant is expensive and raising the funding for that is a challenge. Uh, also the level of awareness of carbon removal at the time was very low. So um, what carbon engineering did was we worked closely with Occidental uh, who've been a tremendous partner for, for carbon engineering because we needed a really big company to help us. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say us, I'm not carbon engineering anymore. The company needed somebody like an oxy to really help them get to the, to the stage of, of deployment that they needed to be. Uh, at Captura, we don't have quite the same problem. Our capital costs are much lower because we don't need to build air contactors. So you know, what I'm hoping to do is work with multiple different parties that are interested in building our technology. We'd like to license our technology to partners in many, many different areas, geographies, and sectors so that they can, they can work with us. Um, it, I do think partnership is really important. Um, you know, there's a lot of good technical ideas, but as we all know, many, many good technical ideas don't get to large-scale deployment. And I think a lot of companies in this sector will need the support of larger companies and the financial sector to get to deployment. Uh, and you know, what I hope is the visibility of things like the XPRIZE encourages larger companies thinking about what their business needs to look like in the world of climate change and, and seizing opportunities in this sector with companies like ours and Carbion and others um, to, 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 to get to deployment quick. So I think uh, you know, th those are my lessons learned. <laughs> Work with partners and, and try and get more people engaged in this field. It allows faster deployment. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I think partnership is obviously key to making all this successful. And it's partnership between companies and government and, um, you know, research institutions to Naeem's earlier um, point. So one um, last question kind of about the state of current things for you, Hans, is I think your website refers to a rotating drum, which will allow you to have your process have lower energy consumption, which I'm as most of our listeners, I'm sure, aware is one of the critiques of DAC is the amount of energy that it needs. So um, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you as a company are thinking about high energy use of the of DAC as you work to scale? Yeah, I think the energy use has been a concern, of course, uh, for many years um, with respect to direct air capture. I think thermodynamics allow the, the energy consumption to be pretty low, as low as uh, 250 kilowatt hour per ton. Uh, but in reality, of course, uh, it's 10 times more or, or 20 times more, let's say, uh, depending on the process that, uh, that you use. So a lot is about, um, okay, looking up the limits of uh, what physics and chemistry allows uh, to approach to get closer to that thermodynamic uh, limit, let's say, of capturing CO2 from air. Um, and there's quite some tricks, of course, that, that, you, can, uh, that you can use uh, for, that, uh, for that purpose. And one of the tricks, for example, that we're using indeed with the rotating drum, uh, what you get is actually that uh, the, the, the time that we use to heat up the, the drum is actually quite short. Uh, and that means that when you, when you do that, most of the energy goes into releasing of the CO2 and does not go into releasing any collateral material, for example. And because in most processes you have, uh, let's say, a chemical active substance, uh, which is really the one that binds CO2, uh, but that chemical substance is uh, on a kind of carrier material, which has a certain mass. Uh, now, the bigger the mass of that carrier material, the worse your energy budget becomes, because typically when, you, when you're heating up the material to release the CO2, you're also heating up the, the carrier material. And that's kind of... Um, yeah, waste um, energy that, that you that you get into the system. And so the, the, the whole trick is to uh, to avoid as much as you can to heat up the carrier material. And one of the tricks, for example, is to shorten the time and to work with very short pulses of heat uh, and to concentrate that heat or that energy mostly into releasing the CO2 from, from the, the chemical molecule, which is binding the CO2. Um, so, and, and I think we, we um, also at Carbion, uh, we have years ahead to, to further optimize that, that energy budget. Uh, but the good thing is that physics allows it, right? Um, so it's, it's a matter, and that's an invitation, I think, to many people around the world uh, to look for smarter solutions uh, on how to limit that, that energy budget. Um, uh, numbers have been quoted eh, in terms of 2,500 kilowatt hour per ton. Eh, uh, I think uh, our estimations is that we can get it maybe to 1,000 kilowatt hour per ton. Um, another aspect eh, besides the speed is also, for example, the water budget. I mean, besides CO2, there is a lot more water in here than there is CO2. So one of the side catches, let's say, uh, when you capture CO2 is that you're also catching water. Um, and uh, when you heat up the material, of course, you heat up also all the water. So there's a lot of energy that goes into heating up the water, which, which you catch as a side catch. So the tricks also to avoid catching water, uh, so to make your material more hydrophobic, for example, there's, there's just a toolbox full of, of tricks that, that, that people, scientists and, and engineers can use and with which not exploited to its full potential. Um, and that makes it, um, um, yeah, that, that gives, I think, a, a great feeling, I think, to people that, that, um, that, uh, that want to work on this climate challenge that, you know, we've not uh, exploited the possibilities of our knowledge to the full extent. Uh, we started this conversation by saying that a few years ago, five years ago, 
nobody was actually um, uh, supporting uh, the idea of extracting CO2 from air because everybody believed it, it would always be too expensive. So there was no financing, not even at research institutes or universities. Actually, very few people were researching this. Uh, but the result is that the, 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 the global knowledge in this world about uh, all the tricks and the toolboxes that we need for, for making that process cost-effective, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's it hasn't built filled enough the last few years because there has been not enough research and not enough, not enough financing that went into that. So in a way, we are now catching up, and that's a good uh, thing, of course, but... For sure, we have not tried uh, the last uh, the last technique and the last tool. So I'm quite optimistic with respect to the future, uh, because we've really not exhausted all the means, all the technical means to make this process more more cost effective. I was just at a a conference in Miami this week, and I heard a VC uh, guy say, "If the physics allow you to do it, we can do it." And um, you know, I think his point was kind of exactly what you were saying, Hans, that we can do it. We just haven't yet found the way to do it. Um, exactly. So finally, uh, I have the same question for both Hans and Steve. I'll start with you, Steve. Um, you know, what are what is kind of the roadmap for Captur in the next three years, and to to help you win the grand prize or even one of the runner-up prizes because they're all very generous. And, you know, can you name one or two hurdles that you think you have to overcome to get there? Um, you know, I, I think the roadmap for, for Capture is, uh, let's say, twofold. Uh, the first part of it is, is working on the regulation, the public awareness, customer awareness, finance awareness of uh, the potential of direct ocean capture. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the last few years on direct air capture, uh, for example, the 45Q tax credit for California LCFS eligibility um, has made a significant impact in bringing larger companies to the table to start thinking about how to how to do this. So for me, a high priority is, is positioning direct ocean capture the same way that direct air capture is increasingly being positioned uh, in regulation and, and uh, just awareness. Um, and so that's kind of a, a macro uh, answer. Um, the, the micro answer with respect to where we're at, get those first systems installed in the sea um, and learn from them. Team with a partner for our first larger scale plant. Um, we believe that we could go straight to a commercial plant. Uh, and uh, if we work with the desalination industry or the oil and gas platform industry, there's a lot of oil and gas platforms that are retired every year because they're no longer economic. They are great sites to house our technology. One oil and gas platform could accommodate about a million tons worth of CO2 extraction. So we'll be looking for partners who want to work with us to bring our first system into operation. And you know, if that first system means that we qualify for the, the XPRIZE criteria, great. Uh, I mean, I, I think the XPRIZE is a wonderful setup. So. Um, so yeah, I think I think that I think those are the priorities for us. Oh yeah, those are great priorities, Steve. I I I, I always gravitate to anything that's reusing in the same way, uh, you know, because I think that's such an important concept for just general environmental health that often gets overlooked. So I love the reuse of oil and gas assets. Um, Hans, same question for you. 
what are what's your roadmap for the next few years to win the X Prize, and what do you think your bigger hurdle, biggest hurdles might be? I think that the, the first main milestone will be uh, building a first prototype of the machine. Will still be a relatively small prototype, say maybe one ton a year. But anyway, it will have all the elements, um, uh, including those uh, the scalability elements that would allow us then to expand it into a one thousand ton system uh, one year later for the X Prize. So. The proof point, um, uh, which we foresee end of this year and uh, beginning maybe of next year, is, is kind of the major next milestone for us. And we want to build it in such a way that it's not a major hurdle then to upscale that to a thousand ton or even beyond a thousand ton. Um, so getting all the components together to get that demonstration end of this year, I think it's, it's our main next uh, step. And I concur with Steve also on the on the sequestration part of things. Hey, we, uh, I mean, we partner with with um, uh, other um, organizations that deal with the sequestration of the CO two gas that we produce. Uh, storing it in empty oil and gas fields, I think, is it's a very obvious way of storing the CO two. But there are still today uh, very few operational sites that do actively store CO two underground in this way. Um, and uh, many uh, sites are under development as we speak, but many of them will come into operations only by 2025, for example, which is just uh, late for uh, too late for the X price. So there will also be a challenge to find uh, the right sequestration partner that can help us in 2024 to actually store in a, in a permanent way the, the, the 1,000 ton that we hope to filter from the from the air. So we have a challenge on our side, of course, but there's definitely also a challenge outside there in the world to find uh, yeah good sequestration possibilities for the gas, uh, the CO2 gas that, uh, that we will uh, produce. So it's not a done deal, far from it, but it's a, it's, an, it's a nice challenge to work on. And I agree with Steve, like, you know, it's something that simply cannot wait. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, sometimes you're frustrated that things do not progress faster uh, you would, of course, love to, uh, to get more speed in this and, and the bigger attention now from the world and, and also thanks to the XPRIZE, of course, helps to accelerate and that, that's for sure. Uh, but in technology, I've been now 30 years in technology development and things turn out always to be more difficult than, than, than you think they will. Uh, it always costs more money than you think it will. Um, and uh, one of the big lessons of working in technology is that you need to deal with your frustrations and never give up. So um, that's, that's, a, that's a lesson learned and, and we'll need that lesson uh, in the years uh, to come. But hopefully uh, uh, we can have this conversation again uh, in 2024 uh, when we inaugurate uh, our systems. And uh, then hopefully I can say, we did it, we managed. <laughs> but between now and that moment, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, water will flow into the ocean. <laughs> I love that, Hans. I mean, that's an overall positive message, but we all know anytime you construct something, it's always over budget and it's always like you pull your hair out, but you get there eventually. And that's what, uh, you know, we want to keep our eye on. So I'm going to end it with you, Naeem, because I want to come back to maybe a higher level look. So, um, you know, this these winners have given you kind of an idea of where carbon removals, as we put it, state of the art is. Um, so what is your hope that to see in about three years when the final X Prize winner is announced? And, and what do you think the best teams need to 
work on to really help the industry get to the scale that we need to get to? The great question. And yeah, you're absolutely right. These two companies really are state of the art. So it's been great to kind of hear about their vision and, and how they're thinking about kind of their roadmap. Um, you know, I, I think they're going to need to figure out over the next few years, a, a few key things. Um, you know, they're going to need to be able to demonstrate, you know, how they can overcome operational and even manufacturing obstacles with getting an operational CDR project started. They're going to need to figure out how to navigate these tricky regulatory and policy challenges that come up as, as they um, start to build towards their roadmap. Um, they'll want to be able to crowd in additional funding from other funders beyond kind of this, um, this milestone uh, award, obviously. Um, you know, they'll want to be able to durably and verifiably store captured CO2 um, themselves or with an injection partner or, or however else they're, they're storing CO2. And, and importantly, they're going to need to be able to gain some kind of acceptance from, from nearby local communities. Um, they're going to need to start showing that. I know we're still in the early stages here, but being able to figure out these kind of challenges uh, as the rubber hits the road is going to be really important. And, you know, the next three years are not going to give any of these companies, I think, enough time to start getting down the cost curve in a meaningful way or, or anything like that. But these kind of practical challenges of actually going from a, a bench scale or lab scale or early pilot scale project to something that's more of a demonstration plant um, that can do a thousand tons of CO2 uh, is, is going to be is going to be difficult. And, and so some of those kind of operational manufacturing, regulatory policy, uh, community acceptance stuff, uh, is they're, they're going to start bumping up against some of that uh, over the next few years. And, and this you know, excellent group of 15 companies are just going to need to be able to figure out how to, how to overcome some of those, those hurdles. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if a good portion of these 15 companies can operate you know, full carbon removal projects, um, you know, at, at a scale of, you know, a thousand tons, you know, cumulatively over a few years or, or beyond that, you know, that's a huge win for the sector. So this is going to be great, um, you know, a great opportunity for the CDR space. And I hope that we're taking some time uh, over the next few years to learn and, and uh, from the exemplars within this 15 of what they, what they did right and what they could have done differently and what they learned and open source that so that more companies that are um, that are engaging in this space uh, can learn uh, from, from their experience. And we can kind of keep this flywheel of experience kind of going that, that will, I think, benefit the CDR space over the long term. So I think this can have a really catalytic effect. And I'm really excited about what the future holds for this. Well, thank you, Naeem. To end on that, I think, very positive and upbeat note. You know, we all, I think, need good news in the world today. And Hans, Steve, I am so excited to keep watching your companies grow and see how you navigate these really interesting challenges, none of which seems insurmountable. It just needs a little time and effort. And, um, you know, as you grow, we hope we can have you back on the podcast and keep hearing about what you're doing. So, Han, Steve, Naeem, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it and learned so much. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom X Prize edition number two. So I'm very happy to have with me this afternoon, Jason Vallis, VP of External Relations at Planetary. Jason, welcome. Hi there. And then I also have Dave Hazelbeck, founder and CEO of Global Algae. Hi, Dave. Hi. 
You guys are in like two extremes of the environment, cold Canada and warm California. <laughs> yeah, well, warm Canada right now, but yes. Oh, well, I <laughs> and then we have Susan Sue, who is a partner focused on climate investing at Toba Capital. And she also serves as a board member of Carbon Business Council and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. So with that, we're going to go ahead and start talking to both planetary and global algae. So planetary aims to use direct ocean capture to remove carbon dioxide, reverse ocean acidification, and create renewable fuels while global algae uses algae farming to capture carbon dioxide and make products like polymers and, and displace farming operations uh, leading to the regrowth of rainforests. Very high level. So at, um, I'm gonna start by letting Jason and then Dave just give a quick overview of their companies. So Jason, take it away. Hi, well, thank you again for having us on the show. Um, so Planetary, we convert mine waste into a form of alkalinity, which we use to uh, enhanced carbon removal in the ocean. Um, and so we can get into the details of what all of that is, but for carbon removal, it's an ocean-based approach. Uh, we're founded in late 2019 uh, by our co-founders, Mike Kelland and uh, Dr. Greg Rao, who pioneered this technology. And uh, we're excited to be moving from lab to sort of pilot scale activities, and we can get into all those details. Cool. Dave, can you give us a quick overview about Global Algae? You've been around since 2013, so much longer than most CDR companies. Sure. So our, our company is focused on bringing algae uh, to market for production of proteins and oils. And we're doing this because it is so much more productive than conventional uh, crops. We're talking about 20 to 30 time improvement in productivity. Uh, that level of productivity changes everything in terms of land use, water use, uh, revenue, and rural rejuvenation. It, it really will impact a large number of areas. But for CDR, the biggest thing is it allows you to restore the rainforests because you can generate the protein and oil, which are currently which we're currently deforesting uh, to produce. You actually can stop the deforestation and enable reforestation, and that's so that's the main CDR aspect we all one of the products that we make from the oils is the polymers and those also act as a carbon removal because they it'll the carbon will be stored in those polymers for several hundred years both really interesting technologies so um jason maybe you could dive into uh planetary a little bit more and tell us about your use what i find fascinating is this use of mine tailings renewable fuels. I mean, you guys are doing a ton. So maybe give our audience a little bit of an overview. Happy to. So as I mentioned in the intro, our approach really starts with the largest natural reservoir of carbon on the Earth's surface, which is the oceans. Uh, the majority, 83% of all carbon that's in communication with the atmosphere resides within the oceans. Uh, it's about 50 times more, in fact, than uh, what we have in the atmosphere. And I think a lot of folks will also know that the oceans have been absorbing a lot of the carbon, excess carbon that we have emitted into the atmosphere. And this is having a devastating impact. It's actually uh, causing the oceans to become more acidic. Um, and it's not good for marine life. But over geologic timescales, uh, the oceans would naturally equilibrate. Uh, and they would do that through what we call the slow carbon cycle, where rain um, you know, lands on rocks erodes them or weathers them, forming these alkaline uh, carbonates and bicarbonates, which end up in the ocean and effectively trap that carbon in the ocean. So our process is accelerating that 
by adding alkalinity to the ocean. Um, and it effectively captures the carbon for 100,000 years within that uh, within seawater chemistry. Now, the tricky part, and this is where we get into the fuels, is that this alkalinity or this antacid for the ocean that we produce, um, you can buy that on the market today. It's commonly found in like Rolades, for instance. However, the way that that is manufactured today is very carbon intensive. So it wouldn't make any sense from an LCA point of view, life cycle analysis point of view, to actually take a carbon intensive product and put it in the ocean for the purposes of carbon removal. It doesn't make sense. So we've re-engineered the entire process of producing this, this antacid for the ocean to, catch, to capture carbon using mine waste. And we've done that in a way that doesn't emit a bunch of carbon in the process. It's an electrochemical approach. And the benefit of that is that you produce these byproducts. So first we have to purify the mine waste. In the process, we're sort of mining mine waste for uh, metals that we don't want to end up in the ocean. Those metals have a market value. And the electrochemical process itself produces hydrogen, which can be used as a, as a fuel or to decarbonize mine operations. So to put that all together, I know there's a lot that, uh, that I just explained there. Um, ocean, largest carbon reservoir on the Earth's surface. It's naturally going to take up all the CO2, um, but it needs to be sped up. We do that by adding alkalinity or this antacid, which we produce from mine waste. And in the process, we have these byproducts that we can sell to reduce the cost of carbon removals, being hydrogen and battery metals, which also decarbonize the mine. Did you get all that? I mean, it is the third or fourth time I've heard it, so it's sinking in more and more each time. Uh, really quickly, um, I'm curious about the mine tailings piece because does that limit where you can locate your plants because you need to co-locate near mines or is that part of the LCA uh, analysis that you're doing? Yeah, so there's sort of these Goldilocks scenarios where we would deploy this technology. The great thing is the mine tailings that we're using, and we can use several different kinds. Um, the metallurgical process can be adapted for several different types of mine waste. They're globally abundant. They're found all over the world. Um, but yes, ideally you want to be located within a certain distance of a coast. Uh, so one thing I didn't mention in my previous explanation is we're using permitted outfalls, like wastewater treatment outfalls to add this alkalinity to the seawater. So you want to make sure that you're not having to truck this stuff, you know, hundreds of kilometers and uh, and then using you know basically emitting in that process right um so within a 500 kilometer radius of those outfalls and that's where our demonstration site is uh, today um and uh yeah i think that answers your question right yeah and then all the renewable electricity as well is a big key ingredient yeah. to a lot of these cdr methods as well yeah um so dave can you give us a little bit more explanation about how your process helps um helps reforest the Amazon and also the types of polymers and the uses for these polymers that you are, that um, Global Algae is developing. Sure, so in terms of reforestation, the main uh, way it addresses that is by meeting the demand for either palm oil in, the, in Southeast Asia or protein in the Amazon, which are the primary drivers for deforestation. In the Amazon, it's either soy directly or soy that's displacing ranching and the ranching uh, leads to the deforestation. So when we grow algae, uh, we're growing those in, in open shallow ponds basically that are, are moving. So we call them raceways. They look kind of like little rivers that go around in a circle. And um, they absorb carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. And then the algae itself is about 50% oil and about 30% protein when we harvest it. 
And so, and it grows very fast because you don't have any roots. You don't have all the leaves and other things. It's just a, it's a single cell algae. And so it's very, very efficient. And so as a result, we get 20 to 30 times more protein and oil per acre than you can with the most efficient uh, conventional crops. I mentioned soy and palm just because those are the best crops we have available today to minimize our land and water use. And so that's why we're using them. We need something better though. We push the earth to the breaking point really in terms of not only climate, but also deforestation with water contamination and the eutrophication from conventional crops. And so we need a new solution. Soy and palm were great solutions that have got us this far in a way. I mean, I know they're the enemy for a lot of people, but in reality, we would have already gone past the breaking point if we didn't have those high productivity crops. What we need is a new solution today to take us into the into the future that that really changes things. And with a 20-fold improvement in productivity, that really will lead to an abundant, sustainable world where we can actually not only reforest areas, you can restore some grassland areas, you can restore a lot of nature because we won't need as much land for our food and we'll restore a lot of waterways because with algae, we don't have any runoff. There's no use of pesticides, herbicides. Um, and so, and that runoff from agriculture is the primary cause of global water impairment. So it'll improve water impairment, both surface waters as well as uh, underground water because you don't have percolations, any percolation of things down. And so that's why it's so important for, for the uh, environment and the climate is one aspect of it. It really though entails kind of restoring uh, the whole planet, not just the climate. So it's, it's a very holistic ecosystem benefit package that your company is offering, it sounds like, from water uh, cleanup to carbon removal to reforestation. Really cool. Um, can you describe a little bit the polymers that you're creating or where they're used? Sure. So the oils that we make are kind of a combination. It's omega-3 oils, and then there's also the typical palmitoleic and palm, palmitic oils. One of those oils, palmitoleic, is actually a very good feedstock for making polyurethanes and for making polyols. And polyurethanes are in lots of different products and everything from, you know, car seats to surfboards to shoes to, you know, just sandals, all kinds of consumer products. And so... Uh, by taking CO2 from the atmosphere, growing the algae, putting that into those products, those products, while they get recycled to the extent, and they should be recycled as much as we can, typically 70% of it ends up in the landfill and it all eventually lands up in, ends up in a landfill, even if it's recycled a few times. And so that ends up being long-term storage because it takes several hundred years for that to degrade. Interesting. Um, so Susan, you are hearing some of the cool new technology that's that's being um, funded through these X prizes. Kind of curious what your perspective is on the different milestone winners, the 15 winners, and and how you think about the technology and what what this maybe says about the X prize and what they're looking for. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's incredibly impressive. I'm really happy that we're talking to that, that we've got Dave and Jason here today, because they're definitely among the milestone winners that are, that are probably more interesting. Um, I always think about it in terms of, you know, when you look at carbon removal, there are, so, so I'm a venture capitalist, I'm an investor. So I look at things in terms of, 
um, through that lens a bit. And I think there are questions around, um, and not every, by the way, not every carbon removal project that's going to be meaningful to the world has to have a uh, venture scale business model. I'm not saying that, but many of them are seeking venture dollars, which would imply that they are at least gunning for a venture scale business model. I think that can sometimes put um, a very uh, challenging set of pressures onto what's already a really difficult endeavor, which is like literally science and magic combined into one. And so what I really like about what Jason and Dave are both doing is that you get a multi-solve effect, but you also um, you know, have other ways to basically generate offtake revenue besides just carbon credits. And I'll say um, I'm really impressed because there are many, there are some companies out there that have raised venture dollars that don't have the same sort of um, array of ways to solve problems, but also array of ways to make money that um, planetary and global algae do. So I think that's just really exciting and awesome. And, um, you know, different companies go about their kind of like financing and storytelling strategy in different sequence. Some of the milestone winners have already raised, uh, raised venture dollars from prominent VCs and some maybe haven't yet. And so it's just a choice for the entrepreneur, whether you want to use the X prize as a launch pad for your fundraising versus whether, um, you know, maybe fundraising just came at an earlier opportunity. So I think that's also just something I would call out, like, you know, something for me to even remind myself is, you know, just because somebody has raised um, venture dollars doesn't mean that it's a better solution than um, one of these X prize winners and vice versa. Um, and I think also, if you look at the milestone winners versus all of the other winners, I mean, sorry, the milestone winners versus all of the other entrants at this, this stage. So there were 60 that it was narrowed down to 15 milestone winners chosen out of those 60 and 1100 total applicants. Um, I kind of gave you a, a funny funnel there, but you know, it went from 1100 to 60 to 15. Um, there it, it's not even, you know, the milestone winning is not even saying that out of all of those applicants that everybody else is bad and only these solutions are good. A lot of it has to do with where things are in the timeline, um, and how far along, uh, how far along some of the development cycles are for each of these. Now, things can, um, you know, accelerate for certain projects at any time. And while other projects might come up against um, some obstacles that might delay them. And so I think it's all still anybody's guess as to who's going to win the bigger prizes that are going to be awarded down the road in several years. But um, already, you know what, for investors looking at carbon removal and for anybody that's looking to be a buyer of carbon removal, 15 is already a lot to diligence and look through. So I think what's really helpful about these is it's a convenient shortlist. When I look at the difference between these and some of the others that I've kind of checked out on a cherry picking basis, just because there are so many, you have to kind of cherry pick, there is a degree of, um, of maturity and uh, scientific scientific rigor, but also um, scalability within these current milestone winners that maybe some of the others are still working on doesn't mean they're not going to get there, but they are still working on it at the time, you know, within this current time window that um, the, the milestone winners were selected in. 
It's really, really good point, Susan, that there's this, we're all on a timeline continuum and these companies are further along than others, but we need, as they said in the last show, we need all the solution every and every solution. So we're certainly rooting for all the teams to be successful. Um, Jason and Dave, one of the things that uh, I talked about in the last episode, and I'm curious to get your perspective is this idea of moral hazard. And I'm not talking about the moral hazard that is often considered, which is the, you know, carbon dioxide removal will prevent emission reduction. I'm more thinking about the fact that you both touch waterways and those are sort of, are both kind of sacred places. And also people are very concerned about the impact of technologies within the ocean or within waterways. So when asked that question, how do you respond to people um, who kind of question the potential negative impacts to the ocean or waterways that your your different technologies have? Dave, I'll start with you and then I'll move to Jason. Sure, well, well first of all, just to clarify, we're actually putting ponds on land so it's not touching waterways. Okay, gotcha. Um, and so we, and again, we and one of the big benefits is we're not using the things that can contaminate the waterways. There's no herbicides, pesticides, insecticides. There's no runoff, these are lined ponds so they don't percolate down and then there's no runoff uh, because even rain is captured there. So from that standpoint, I don't think we have any negatives for waterways. I think in general, uh, you know, that's been an emphasis though of the company from the beginning. We were founded to try and create, you know, improve the world. And so we look at all the possible negatives and try and make sure we have answers for anything and that we, you know, design around that. Uh, it's actually one of the one of the reasons why you know it's taken a long time research as you mentioned we started in 2013 we knew it was there was a lot of research problems that needed to be solved not because algae couldn't hit those productivity metrics that was easy the hard part was figuring out how to do it economically so that when you can make a product that can compete with palm oil and soy directly without having any kind of uh, subsidies or anything and that's really been what we focused on Cool. Well, thank you for the clarification. Obviously, I'm totally misunderstood, but I, I think I get it now a little bit at least. Jason, how about you? It's a very good question. It's something that we think a lot about. Um, so I guess the, the question we normally get is about you know carbon removals. And is that just going to let people off the hook to keep emitting? And to that, I would say, like obviously, decarbonization is job one. Anyone in the space will, will tell you that. Um, I know that wasn't your question though related to waterways, but I just wanted to, to put that out there. And one thing that's uh, unique to our process, which we call the accelerated carbon transition, that's the short form, I should have probably started with that, um, is with hydrogen and battery metals that not only are we doing carbon removal in the ocean, but we're doing, um, we're, we're enabling decarbonization as well with those things, because they're gonna be in high demand to get us to as low as possible emissions. Um, but in terms of our work in the ocean, that is, uh, we have a whole team dedicated to that. Um, and we're, there's two challenges. One is the, the measurement and the verification of the carbon. But alongside that, we've sponsored quite a bit of work with our partners at Dalhousie University, uh, as well as at the University of Miami, looking at the impacts to marine life. Because um, we, you know, we know that ocean acidification, so unabated pollution is having a devastating impact. And there's been research to indicate that alkalinity enhancement actually improves uh, outcomes for things like coral reefs that become more resilient with alkalinity enhancement. But we can't just take a couple of studies and say, oh, we think we, we know this is going to be good. We have to continue to, to close those knowledge gaps. And we're very fortunate to be working with collaborators internationally, dozens of PhDs that are uh, answering these kinds of questions 
with us. So um, yeah, it's a pretty exciting time. Phytoplankton, oysters, coral reefs, uh, these are all things that we're actively uh, working with today. And uh, the last thing I would just add is uh, on the land side. So uh, it is an electrochemical process. It does use uh, fresh water. All of that, much like Dave was saying, is contained um, so that there's no chance of uh, contamination. So we actually recycle all the products within our metallurgical and electrochemical cell. Um, and what's left, so we start with mine waste, which is often hazardous for the communities that are living in and amongst it, especially at our, our demo site. And um, when we're done uh, processing those tailings, they're actually basically a sand, like a silicate material that's left over. So we're destroying um, or you know, mitigating the, the hazard that's remaining in those tailings. So we think there's a lot of really positive aspects to this from an environmental point of view, besides just climate restoration and ocean restoration. Cool. So, uh, you know, pivoting on that, I'm curious from both to hear from both of you, what this million dollars is going to be used for in each of your companies? Like what's the immediate, uh, you know, roadmap for you with this million dollars? Uh, Jason, if you want to go first and then I'll ask Dave. Sure. So I mentioned at the beginning that we're, we're moving, it's a very critical phase for us because we're moving from these lab bench scale uh, tests to the actual site where we're scaling up this technology. So on the metallurgical process where we've you know simulated our process with like hundreds of kilograms of, of tailings, I shouldn't say simulated because we're using real tailings. Um, we're moving to the mindset we're going to be doing like a hundred ton uh, version of that process at the site. And that's very similar to what we would expect to see at sort of a commercial scale. You'd have multiple um, you know, piles of rock that we're working on. Uh, and then same thing with the electrochemical cells. So we're moving to a new revision. We've got a whole battery of tests lined up to optimize that. Uh, and so that's really the, the green teamwork or the land side. And then on the blue team side, um, we've scaled from sort of beaker, you know, where we're doing seawater with a little bit of you know, milligrams of uh, alkalinity addition or antacid and measuring how much carbon we uptook. Now uh, we just concluded uh, like pool sized um, addition tests at uh, Dalhousie University in the Aquatron, which has a really cool name. Um, and uh, so we're going through those results now, which, which look really, really promising. And at the same time, we're doing baseline studies. So before we can do anything in the ocean, we have to have a very, very good understanding of what the condition is today. And so we're doing that in Bedford Basin, which is just uh, by Halifax, uh, as well as uh, at the south of the UK, actually. We had some funding from the UK government. And so we're working with the wastewater treatment plant there. So by, by the end of the year, um, it, you know, guided by the science, we hope to be in a position to do some actual testing uh, in an outfall where we can measure this in, in real world conditions for a limited duration. Uh, so that's really the immediate. And then I'm taking all Dave's time here, but going to... Uh, um, next year, we'll be integrating the electrochem and the, the larger scale metallurgical process on site. Uh, and then the final year where we're, I say final year for XPRIZE anyways, it's uh, shipping out basically a kiloton of this product to the coast and doing uh, addition uh, so that we can have that certified pathway uh, for, for removals. Dave. Yeah, so right now uh, we're moving from our R&D facility, which is what we've been uh, testing on for the last eight years. It's in Kauai, it's eight acres of uh, algae. And we need to scale eventually to thousands of acres, uh, but we're doing that in two steps. So we're going a 20 time scale up from our eight acres up to 160 acres. And so that's what we're working on right now is uh, getting that facility built 
that's the facility that will be used for the for the X prizes. But more importantly, probably it's going to be used to generate offtakes. Will validate the technology at the next scale to allow us to move to full commercial, which will be in the thousands of acres, and generate enough product in terms of oil and protein that we can get larger offtakes that we'll need uh, to move to the large scale. And so there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem right now. Algae has been around for a while, primarily in niche markets uh, because the cost has been so high. Food companies and, uh, and uh, consumer companies have not really been that interested in the product. They're, they're interested in following the market, but they're not gonna put any effort into it because they don't know that the supply will be there. And so you need to be able to generate enough to do that. This will allow us to do that and really start we have partnerships with most of these companies now, but it'll allow us those partnerships to really expand so that we can uh, generate those markets and have offtakes ready. Our goal is to be able to, uh, to build a much larger facility, like a 5,000 acre facility in uh, 2025. That wouldn't be part of XPRIZE, but that would be the first large scale commercial facility, which then we would cookie cutter uh, in terms of implementation around the world. Cool. Um, you both sound like you have really well-defined roadmaps. And so, Susan, I'm kind of curious from a VC perspective, when you analyze a company like the size, you know, where they are in terms of funding and size, what are you looking for in a roadmap? What are you the things that catch your eye or that you would focus on as a potential investor? Um, well, you know, to be honest, this week is probably a different answer than um, what most people would have answered a month ago or two months ago. And I think it's actually ultimately very healthy. So um, I would say, number one, I love that Dave was talking about um, uh, about really securing the offtakes. I think there's a misconception amongst maybe people who are like, still kind of of the camp of like, well, are we really ready to deal with climate change? That demand is the limiter. Um, but actually, you know, most of us who've been following this for a little while and kind of seeing the trends as they stand today in 2022, we realize that supply is, is actually um, the much harder problem to solve in many cases. And in particular, if you're selling into large scale um, industry, you know, there's a minimum threshold that you need to be able to reach before anybody will even, it's just not worth it for folks to talk to you. They, they literally can't because their supply chains are set up in such a way that um, that minimum threshold is actually quite high. So for some um, very early companies that I, I can't remember which one this was, and I apologize, but I saw yesterday some news about a company that had, um, that had successfully uh, demonstrated that their technology could capture like 10 grams of CO2 or something like that. Like if that's you, great, but um, you need to have a very, very credible um, both science and also engineering as a separate, uh, as a separate phase um, story that can, that, that shows how you're gonna get a, that path, you're gonna build that path to um, that minimum threshold of supply. So I think, you know, just the ability to build is the, the first really big thing. And then the second thing is, and I think this is hard because it's gonna be hard to hear because not every company um, can implement this, but I do think that, you know, we hear a lot about modularity. We've heard about direct air capture companies that are taking a novel, you know, more modular approach, their machines are smaller, whatever, whatever, like, et cetera. And we think that modularity is, 
um, essentially good because of the lower implied capex. But actually, I want to highlight that there are other reasons why um, breaking things into smaller pieces is really helpful. And one of the reasons is because as investors, you know, at the end of the day, no matter how early a company is, you're essentially trying to underwrite um, the validity of, of present or future revenue. You know, it, does it make sense, the story of how this company, if it's a private company that's going to seek private investment, does it make sense that this company can actually sustain itself and actually grow revenue and deliver returns? And part of that actually has to do with um, how much it costs them to generate that revenue, of course, that's the CapEx, but there's also an OpEx component to revenue, of course, right? How much does it cost them on an ongoing basis? Not just the facility that they have to build up front, but all of the ongoing inputs. And I think um, one thing that companies kind of forget because maybe they don't um, uh, have a lot of like finance people around them, which is by the way, totally fine um, in these earlier days, is that it can actually be really helpful to um, structure your project such that OPEX and CAPEX can really be separated. And that's what modularity can grant. You know, if you can um, do smaller things and sort of, um, you know, make your, make your money along the way, as opposed to have to do a really, really big thing before you can take in a single dollar, um, that not only helps you and also all of your other stakeholders to really de-risk um, the technology, but it also helps your financial stakeholders to de-risk the financing so that they can understand, oh, I see, like, okay, we can um, do a smaller thing here, get a drip of revenue, see how that works, and then slowly start to um, make that uh, into a scalable path. So I think, um, it's a little bit of a long answer and it's kind of maybe a little bit more technical than you were looking for, but I do think really thinking through um, not just how good is your product, how good is your technology, but really um, how clever is your financing strategy? Because there are probably choices that you can make early on that, that still lets you do the same-ish, more or less the same product, more or less implement the same technology, but maybe are a better fit for the capital markets. And so that's where I think uh, founders that are, you know, these brilliant genius founders, such as um, honestly, you know, Dave and Jason and everybody that they work with who've spent their entire careers um, developing uh, incredible innovation on the science side could do well to kind of like um, scoot up or have those conversations a little bit earlier about the relationship between what they're doing and how they're going to finance it. Because actually that can, that should inform the shape of your offering because it can make the difference between something that's a lot easier to finance versus something that's a lot harder to finance. And then the last thing that I'll say, Radhika, is that like, this is all just my perspective from like the venture capital side of things, but there are a number of X prize winners that are um, NGOs or nonprofits, a lot of applicants that were not ever meant to be, or don't intend to be for profit projects. And I think that that's great too. I believe there will be enormous amounts of ongoing philanthropic capital that will flood into the space. Um, philanthropic capital dwarfs venture capital in the United States uh, in terms of just total amount. And so in order to really think through your product market fit with regards to qualifying for philanthropic capital, it's really thinking about your story. Do you have a holistic ecosystem benefit story? You know, the, the way that Dave was sort of outlining with global algae, it's about restoration. It's not just about 
um, GHG emissions. Do you have a story about how you're able to, uh, you know, change the profile of these communities, for example, by, um, you know, kind of alleviating some of the damage that mines have done, the way that Jason was talking about. So I think, like, actually having some of those other dimensions can also kind of like put you in the running for other types of capital. And that's something good to um, think about too. But the bottom line is just be thinking about how you're going to get that financing from day one. Susan, that was a great answer and not at all technical. Something I think about a lot from a marketplace perspective is how these financing mechanisms are needed and also how to scale more traditional financing with these newer, less proven technologies and how those two intersect. A show that I want to do later, just FYI. <laughs> but with that, um, you know, one thing I was curious about, Dave, that we didn't quite dive into, but um, is how are you partnering with people in the Amazon? Um, have you kicked off any partnerships? Is this more about just cutting off supply and then working through the reforestation piece? How do you envision that working? So, for, to be clear, first, we're not working with anyone yet. Our, our total focus up till now has been the R&D. Uh, Susan mentioned about the VC. There were a lot of algae companies that were VC funded about 10 years ago. All of them have either pivoted to high value products or gone out of business. And that's because in order to make this competitive for commodities, you need uh, needed a dozen radical innovations to get the cost down. The costs were 10 times too high, which means even small aspects of the process needed to come down. And so it's taken, and I knew it was gonna be a long R&D <laughs> haul to do that. And so I didn't wanna have an artificial timeline on that. It would make us try and scale too early, which is really what happened to most of those companies. They were on a certain timeline to generate revenue. They scaled before they got all the technology together that was needed. And so then they failed. And I wanted to make sure we really did get a solid technology base before we moved forward. And so that's a little bit, a little bit different. But in terms of how we see this happening once we roll it out, one of the things we're doing actually is trying to reach out to foundations right now to partner with them uh, so that we can work with people that are already on the ground in those areas and understand uh, the landscape and can help us figure out the best way to go about it. We're, we're bringing a technical solution, a way that can, people can improve their standard of living, can help alleviate poverty, and at the same time, restore their environment. Uh, how best to implement that in areas is gonna look different in different places. Indonesia is maybe a little more clear because there you've got 1,200 palm plantations that are all over 10,000 uh, acres. Uh, a lot, I think about a couple hundred of those are owned by government entities. You could easily go with one of those and say, look, your palm plantation has to be replanted every 25 years anyway. A lot of those went in in the early 2000s. They're starting to roll around to where they're going to have to redo them anyway. Instead of redoing it, how about we put algae in on 20%, let 80% go back to rainforest. You'll get twice as much oil and you'll get all this protein as well that you can use to help support the aquaculture industry or feed for uh, animal feed uh, in Southeast Asia. And so you, know, you can see how that can work. But Again, that always gets complicated when you get down to the local situation. That's why we really want to partner with people now who are actually involved in, in these areas. And there's one good model kind of out there now. Uh, Conservation International is trying to do shrimp farms uh, to alleviate um, mangrove destruction. And so they're going to farmers 
that are in mangrove areas and saying, look, if you put in this technology, we can give you higher productivity if you'll let 80% of your land go back to the man, or not land, but 80% go back to mangroves and just use 20%. We'll, and they actually provide the financing for that then to do that. So that's an interesting model. I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out. That'll be a good kind of forerunner for what we're trying to do. It's similar and, and give us some insight, but we don't have the answers yet, but, but we are certainly, you know, we certainly, we envision having teams for every individual country really in terms of, of how it would get implemented there because I imagine it will vary from country to country. Yeah, Dave, I love your focus on localized solutions because I think you're absolutely right that you it's not one size fits all, even probably community to community within these countries, it'll vary. Um, so I wanna pivot to next steps uh, and hear kind of first from you, Jason, like if you guys in three years have won the grand prize for the X prize, what do you think your like biggest accomplishment will be? And what do you think are the biggest milestones you have to hit to get to that scale that you need? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, if, um, if we're in the final running for the XPRIZE, which is what we intend to do, then just proving this ocean-based pathway for carbon removal is going to unlock a huge, huge potential, right? So the biggest milestone that we have to hit is, you know, we've shown this works in the beaker, we've shown this works in a pool, and it's going out and getting that sort of certified pathway to doing this uh, in the real world. So sort of like the social license, we talked about the community aspects. I really like Dave's answers about how, um, you know, partnering with these local communities and we're starting that now. So I think that's the biggest uh, accomplishment from sort of a, a movement, if you will, um, developing this ecosystem that's gonna unlock this huge multi-gigaton potential for, for carbon removal in the oceans, not just for our technology, but for all those other 1100 um, and a lot of those are ocean-based that are, are, uh, are vying for that kind of solution as well. Um, from the mine site and uh, the mine waste, I think there's obviously a lot of technical uh, aspects that we have to hit, and we're scaling those up incrementally on the metallurgy, integrating with electrochemistry. Um, but more so, it, again, it comes back to those community relationships. And so uh, I've spent now more time at mine sites than I thought I, I ever would. Um, and every time, uh, you know, what's really great about my job, especially on the external relations side, is that, you know, people are excited about this. Um, and you go and you talk to these towns, they're, they're very passionate about what they do. Often when we're outside of mining communities, you just think, oh, those, you know, like they were just left with this big mess. Um, they don't actually see it as that often. They see that as like, there's a huge potential here. There's other things that we can do here. And they want to be part of the solution. So. In terms of like the biggest accomplishment that we can uh, make in this short amount of time for X Prize, other than actually achieving the X Prize, uh, the thousand tons of removal, I think it's uh, really just showing the world that you know we can have this kind of circular approach, use waste and scale up uh, to to gigatons. Cool. And Dave, same sort of question for you. Like if in three years you've achieved the X prize requirements, what are the biggest milestones and what are the biggest accomplishments you think you'll have made? Well, I don't want to sound exactly like Jason, but it's basically the same answer. Once we we're in the you kind of what I had always envisioned would be the toughest part. I love doing the research and development. I knew there was a lot of work to do there in time, but I figured we would knew we would get there. This step now going to the intermediate scale is the hardest one because 
If we can demonstrate at 160, we will then have offtakes and things to show that at the large scale, they're gonna give a great return on investment. It, it will be, I think, easier to get investment in the full scale. Getting investment at this stage is still too small to compete in our final markets we wanna go for. So we actually have to produce some other products that aren't the main ones, some nutraceuticals or other things in order to make the economics work for this 160 acres. And so uh, this is kind of the most challenging step for us. And, and so if we get past this step, then I think you know the sky's the limit as far as where, where we'll end up beyond that. So this is even far bigger milestone for us than just X prize is just getting to that next stage and showing we can do the, you know, the thousand tons of CO2, of course, but also um, demonstrating that the technology is economically viable and we can generate the offtakes we need to, to go to a full scale. Well, you know, I'm wishing you both the greatest of success and I have no doubt you will get there, but um, I'm gonna leave the final question to Susan, which is kind of, Susan, you've obviously heard, we've heard from two really amazing companies. You gave them, I think, some fantastic advice about financing, but any other words of wisdom coming from the finance side that you would impart to them and kind of what do you hope to see in the next three years from these XPRIZE com competitors? Well, I guess, you know, just to echo something that we've talked about a little bit before in which I think both of these company or these projects, I should say, um, are, it seems like, it seems like everybody kind of has this in mind, but I think really having um, a diversified, um, you know, kind of business model is, just extremely important. Um, I think when I see companies that want to do all of these different things and it's hinging on um, carbon credits alone, um, it feels like, a, uh, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but like a very, very large Christmas ornament that's hanging on a very, very small thread. And let's say the ornament is made out of glass and you really don't want it to break. It just feels like it's not enough. And I like seeing increasingly more and more, not just in carbon removal, but also in other um, climate and um, environmental damage mitigation companies, really this concept of waste to value um, or, or of uh, finding ways to um, deliver measurable business value to customers and to stakeholders becoming more of a dominant theme. And I think that that's, Awesome, because not only is it sound from a unit economics perspective and helps to de-risk, um, you know, sort of the financing piece, but at the end of the day, remember that just like philanthropists, investors also have to tell a story to whoever their investors are. And it's always a really awesome story when you can say, we've taken this thing that used to be a waste product um, or was actually a, a highly damaging waste product and found a way to um, run a, literally an alchemical process that is turning it into something that, that now people want. Um, you know, Dave mentioned uh, polyurethane at some point in, in this conversation. I mean, TPU is a massive, massive uh, business. Like it's used in everything from automotive to your Adidas sneakers, to your fashion, um, you know, accessories. And that's a really, really big 
business. There are companies that are working on um, finding ways to get more TPU into the system. Now, if you can be uh, a supplier into that, then that makes your carbon removal efforts that much more sustainable um, and, and credible. Um, so I think that is something that I would say for all companies that are coming forward now, like starting to recognize that carbon credits are definitely going to be a huge part of the way that you monetize. And there is nothing wrong with that because carbon credits are going up and they are um, going to have a lot of demand. But if you can layer on um, additional revenue streams on top of that, it helps to de-risk everything that you do. And it's a great story that um, the private sector, government funders and philanthropists will all wanna be a part of. And um, you know, I always say this, but just do not forget the story value of what you're building. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. Well, um, I think these two companies have amazing stories to tell. I am so looking forward to watching you both grow and see what happens with the X Prize and beyond. So hope to have you both on the show again. Until then, thank you so much. Have a wonderful weekend and everybody take care. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.